This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the last new episode of So Dead before I take a brief hiatus. I know, it's a bummer, but I did save a pretty big one for you guys today. Today's story was chosen by a Patreon subscriber, Super Freak Sue Lewis. Super Freak is the highest level of patronage, so it comes with the most benefits, one of them being choosing a topic for the show. Sue has been a fantastic fan pretty much from the beginning. She comes to the live shows. I'm pretty sure she made it out on a tour last year. And this is actually a story that I know very well. I've been telling it for years on the Demented Mitten tours. I included a very abbreviated version of it in Haunted Lansing. I've been to the scene of the crime many, many times. If you follow Michigan True Crime, you know this one. The only reason it's taken me so long to cover it is because I do try to keep some of the stories from the tour separate from the podcast. But Sue wanted to hear it. So Sue, this one's for you. Before the ID channel and Oxygen, we had made-for-TV movies and after-school specials, most of which were later acquired by the Lifetime Movie Network. I spent many a Saturday when I was single, on my couch, watching Lifetime movies from the time I woke up until the time I fell asleep. I've seen them all, probably. Uh, Some of my favorite oldies, Nightmare in Columbia County about the murder of 17-year-old Sherry Smith, the one where she disappears from the mailbox at the end of her driveway, like her car's just sitting there with the driver's side door open, and she fucking got snatched out of her own yard. The Amy Fisher movies, naturally, all three of them, and, of course, The Burning Bed. On October 8, 1984, The Burning Bed debuted on NBC, starring made-for-TV movie queen Farrah Fawcett and Paul Lamott, who was not a made-for-TV movie queen. A third of the nation watched their premiere. 75 million people, which was a big deal for a TV show in the 1980s because it was hard to watch TV back then. A lot of houses still had black and white televisions. You had the bunny ears going on or that weird little cable box where you had to switch a bunch of dials and push this button and that one to get the channel you wanted. Very, very complicated in the 80s to watch TV, but 75 million people figured it out this night. At the Wooden Nickel, the lone bar and restaurant in the small village of Dansville, Michigan, locals gathered to watch together on the bar's small TV. But the mood was somber. Because just across the street, about 500 feet away, so really just a hop, a skip, and a jump across the road, was the scene of the crime, still scarred from the violence that took place there. Dansville is located about 25 miles southeast of Lansing, and it maintains a population of right around 500 people. It's a blink-and-you'll-miss-it town. Literally. There is one main intersection where you'll find the town's only bar, only store, only library, and only gas station on four opposing corners. But for such a small town, it's got a lot, lot, lot of weird history. There's a house shaped like an octagon that is rumored to have been part of the Underground Railroad and is rumored to be haunted, which I've been inside, and it is an incredible piece of historical architecture. We actually talked about Dansville once before. It's where you'll find Seven Gables Road, 
and it's known to be very pyrotechnic. Downtown Dansville has burned down several times since the 1800s. But it's best known for a fatal fire that occurred in the heart of town in 1977, next door to the church and across the street from the town bar. A fire set by a young woman by the name of Francine Moran. Francine Moran was born August 17, 1947, in Stockbridge, Michigan, to Walter and Hazel Moran. Stockbridge is another small town just north of Dansville. Walter and Hazel were married in 1938, when Walter was 25 and Hazel was 14. So, yeah, that's how this one's starting out. Gross. And it's just going to get worse. Francine was one of six children. As the second oldest daughter, she was responsible for the care of her younger siblings. When she was just eight years old, eight years old, she was once left to watch her three-year-old brother, and as you might expect, the results were tragic. He slipped away from her, ran into the street, and was hit by a car. He wasn't killed, but he was seriously injured, and Francine carried guilt with her for the rest of her life and went out of her way to care for and dote on her brother after that. The Moran family moved around a lot. They lived in Lansing for a time, and then they settled in Jackson, which is just south of Dansville. Formerly home to Kip's Tacos, Kip's Pizza Taco House. You remember that one, right? I know you do. Francine had it rough growing up. Neither of her parents finished school. Her mother actually only had about a year of schooling, so she wasn't able to read or write for many years. But Francine still learned a lot from her. She learned that a woman's role is to serve her family and obey her husband. No, I'm sorry. Not a good lesson. I mean, the family part, yes, but the obey part? No, ma'am. She learned how to keep an immaculate house, how to do it all, work full-time, care for the children, maintain the household, and she learned how to stand by a toxic, dangerous, violent man, regardless of his actions. Francine's father was an abusive alcoholic with a gambling problem. He couldn't keep a job, and the family was very poor. They moved around a lot. There was no sense of safety or stability. Yet Francine's parents were strict and conservative, so she led a very sheltered life, but unfortunately that shelter was basically a living hell. Francine's mother taught her to make the best of life no matter how little they had, and Francine found a way to thrive despite the adverse conditions that she grew up in. She was whip-smart and her school's number one speller, I can relate, She got good grades, and she loved to read, and as she got older, she put school on the back burner to help out more with her family. She knew all about life's hardships, and compared to those, algebra and English lit seemed unimportant. So it's very important to keep in mind how Francine grew up as we talk about the path her life took. She grew up poor, moving from place to place, watching her alcoholic father beat the shit out of her mother, who was everything to everyone in the family and did all of the things and all of the work. When Francine was 15, she met a cute older boy at a party, James Mickey Hughes, a 17-year-old high school dropout with a real job and his own car. He offered her a ride home and then tried to kiss her. She fought him off, despite repeat advances. He finally got frustrated and gave up, and she decided, correctly, that he was a big fucking creep. But Francine wasn't like other girls. She was five foot seven, so she was taller than most other girls her age, and she had developed her curves early. She stood out in a crowd, and the popular, charismatic Mickey Hughes 
wanted her. So when they ran into each other again the following spring, he asked her out. And for some insane reason, she said yes. They dated all through the summer. Like Francine, Mickey was one of six children. Uh, In his house, it was five boys, one girl. The Hughes were a close-knit family. Hughes? Hugheses? I don't know. They were a close-knit family, and the boys were well-known around Dansville as troublemakers. Mickey fell fast and hard for Francine. He was obsessed with her, and he wanted her to spend every moment with him. But Francine's feelings for Mickey were just lukewarm. She didn't love him, but he was so controlling and so intense that she just kind of followed his lead. At the end of the summer of 1963, Francine turned 16. Mickey had just turned 18 a week prior. Exactly a week prior, actually, so their birthdays were a week apart. After their birthdays, Mickey began pressuring Francine to get more serious. He wanted to do the nasty. Make love? Get biblical? I think I like get biblical because it's so inappropriate. That's what we're going to use from now on. He wanted to get biblical, and he wanted to marry her. And for some reason, Francine gave in to both of those requests. She lost her virginity in the back seat of Mickey's car. And they say romance is dead. Uh, she quit school the fall of her junior year, and she got permission from her parents to marry Mickey at the age of 16. So on November 4, 1963, 16-year-old Francine Moran became Francine Hughes. She and Mickey moved in with his parents, Flossie and Berlin Hughes, who lived on the corner of Grove and Adams Street in downtown Dansville. The dynamic in the Hughes house was one that Francine was used to. The men ruled and the women served them. Ew. Francine and Mickey weren't married but a few weeks before he punched her in the face for the first time. He accused Francine of looking at another man, a friend that he'd invited over. As he attacked his young wife, Mickey's father tried to step in, and the two men began to fight. Flossie called the police, and when they arrived, Mickey took a swing at an officer. He was arrested for assaulting a police officer. Nobody cared that he'd just beaten the shit out of a 16-year-old girl. Berlin drove a traumatized and devastated Francine back home to her parents' house in Jackson. But Mickey soon followed. He did that whole abusive husband thing, apologized, cried, promised it would never happen again, and was on his best behavior. For a while. He got a job in Jackson, and he and Francine got a small apartment not far from her parents' house. The second time Mickey punched Francine in the face was in a grocery store parking lot after accusing her, once again, of looking at another man. From there, the abuse escalated, and being slapped around for not following Mickey's rules and catering to his every whim became commonplace for Francine. Until one night, Francine decided she wanted to go visit her parents, and Mickey told her that she couldn't. That was the last straw for Francine. She was a good, loyal, obedient wife. She did everything Mickey asked of her. All she wanted was to go see her mother. So she disobeyed. She had the gall to talk back to Mickey, her unemployed, insecure asshole of a husband. And so, right in front of the friends that had come to give Francine a ride to her parents' house, Mickey grabbed her and threw her to the ground. He beat her and choked her so severely that her entire face was swollen and bruised, and the blood vessels in her eyes had popped. He couldn't even look at her the next day. Once again, she fled home to Jackson, and once again, Mickey went after her. 
Again, he convinced her he'd changed, and he somehow got her to move back into his parents' house in Dansville with him. A short time later, Francine found out she was pregnant. Once Francine was pregnant with his child, Mickey was no longer jealous of other men. Francine was firmly his now. He'd marked his territory proper-like. But his anger manifested in other ways. He didn't hit her, though, while she was pregnant. He settled for mental abuse for a while. When Francine was seven months pregnant, Mickey told her that he couldn't do it. He was cheating on Francine, he didn't want to be married, and he didn't want to be a father. He told her to go home to her parents and figure it out on her own. But his mother got him to change his mind just before the baby was born, and Mickey and Francine reconciled again. He got a job at a factory in North Lansing, and he and Francine rented a small apartment nearby. Their first child, Christy Marie, was born on December 20th, 1964. So, just a quick timeline check. Francine and Mickey were married in November of 1963 and had their daughter in December of 1964. So all of these things that have happened already happened in just about a year's time. And when they became parents, Francine was only 17 years old and Mickey was just 19. Baby Christy was only a few weeks old when Mickey slapped Francine in a room full of people for talking back to him in front of his friends. That opened the floodgates, and the abuse picked right back up. When Christy was six months old, Francine found out Mickey was cheating again. It wasn't like he was hiding it. He was going out on dates in public with other women. That was how much respect he had for his wife and the mother of his child. When Christy was nine months old, Francine found out she was pregnant again. The Hughes' second child, Jimmy, was born in 1966. Francine didn't think she could support two children on her own at the age of 19, so she stayed with her cheating, abusive husband who couldn't keep a job. And as one might guess, things got worse. A father of two at the age of 21, Mickey started drinking. And, predictably, he was a mean drunk. So the cycle continued. Mickey would get a job, lose it. They would get their own place, then have to move back in with Mickey's parents. Mickey would beat the shit out of Francine then apologize, cheat on her, then come back. And Francine, who was still a teenager, felt trapped. Flossie and Berlin, who had an abusive marriage themselves, would break up the fights and then call the police when they couldn't break them up. But they never did anything to address the larger problem of their son being a wife-beating alcoholic. They were his biggest enablers. Walter and Hazel, Francine's parents, weren't much better. They encouraged her to stay with Mickey. Her mother once told her, or maybe this was just a line from the movie, but it was definitely in the movie, uh, she said, you made the hard bed, you have to lie in it. The police were called to the Hughes home over and over and over. But back then, even if evidence of physical abuse was present and obvious, police could not arrest a man for domestic violence if they didn't witness the incident occur. The only times Mickey ever landed himself in jail were when he assaulted a police officer or, God forbid, another man, but smacking his little wife around was just fine. Francine was terrified that she might get pregnant again, but her Catholic family doctor, the only one Mickey would permit her to see, would not prescribe birth control. And so, get pregnant again, she did. By this point, the abuse had gotten so bad that Mickey didn't even give her a reprieve while she was pregnant. Their third child, a son, Dana, was born in August 1969. When Dana was just nine months old, 
Francine became pregnant for the fourth and final time. In 1970, at the age of 23, Francine was a pregnant mother of three, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. She was married to an abusive alcoholic who couldn't keep a job or provide a stable home for his family. I'll take girls who marry their fathers for a hundred, Alex. Jesus. It's like history repeating itself. Uh, She and the children were literally starving. Whatever money Mickey did bring in, he blew at the wooden nickel on booze. As the head of the household, Mickey was the only one who could apply for public assistance, and he refused to do that. He was too... prideful? So one day in late 1970, with a big pregnant belly and a big black eye, Francine walked into her local welfare office to see if they would take pity on her and allow her to apply for assistance without Mickey's permission. She was denied, but she was sent over to the legal aid office, where a caseworker gave her the $7 she needed to file for divorce. The divorce application then allowed her to apply for assistance, and she walked out of the office that day with the emergency funds that would basically allow her to take the kids and run, and she tried. She returned home that day, and she didn't say a word to Mickey about filing for divorce. She quietly made arrangements, and while Mickey was gone the next day, she packed what little belongings she and the children had, and she tried to get out before he came home. But he pulled onto the street just as she was pulling out of the driveway, and so of course he followed her. Francine drove straight to the police station. The police held Mickey back long enough for Francine to get away so that he couldn't follow her. Francine lived in a tiny apartment with her three babies and a fourth just weeks from being born. Mickey moved in with another woman. Baby Nicole was born in February 1971. Mickey didn't bother to attend the birth. He showed up at the hospital drunk in the middle of the night and he was turned away by hospital staff. While she was in the hospital, Francine came to the realization that she did not love Mickey, like at all, and maybe she could do it without him. The couple remained separated following Nicole's birth, and their divorce was finalized in April of 1971. But then a new cycle began. Mickey basically came and went as he pleased from Francine's apartment, and he refused to acknowledge their divorce. He forced her to have sex with him, beat her regularly, took advantage of the public assistance benefits she'd fought for, the ones that he was too proud to apply for himself. But then on July 8, 1971, everything changed. Mickey was rumored to be drunk off his ass in the middle of a Thursday afternoon when he ran a stop sign in Leslie, which is another small town in the Dansville area. The driver he hit was okay, thankfully, but Mickey was left critically wounded. At first, doctors said he wouldn't make it. He was in a coma for nearly a month. Then they said that he would likely remain in a vegetative state, but he woke up. Medical professionals called his physical recovery a miracle. Who the fuck's doling out these miracles? He doesn't deserve a miracle. Isn't that just the way of it, though? But doctors were worried about his mental state. He was fucked up before he suffered a traumatic brain injury, and the entire time he was in the hospital, he and his family guilted and manipulated Francine into helping care for him. So much so that when they started making preparations for Mickey to be discharged from the hospital and sent home to live with his parents, Flossie convinced Francine to rent the vacant house next door to the Hughes family home so that she and the children could be close by. And Francine did it, which was probably the biggest mistake she made, aside from marrying Mickey in the first place. 
because as Mickey's miraculous recovery continued and he got stronger, his obsession with Francine deepened. He asked her to marry him again. She refused. And for the first time in nearly a year, he hit her. After that, things went back to the way they'd been before the accident. Only worse. He still refused to acknowledge their divorce. He still came and went as he pleased from her house. He still forced her to have sex with him. He abused her regularly. Except now he was meaner, crazier, more violent, more unpredictable. He began choking Francine until she would lose consciousness, holding knives to her throat, threatening to kill her publicly. Years later, friends, neighbors, and even police officers would testify that they saw Mickey savagely beat Francine through the windows of their house, out in the yard, in parking lots. He just did not care where they were or who was watching, because nobody ever did anything about it. And by this point, this had been going on for over a decade. He was seen fighting with his father, striking his mother, and many began mentally abusing the kids. He would lock them out of the house for hours at a time, regardless of the weather. And this is Michigan, guys. We've got nasty weather. He would lock them in their room for several hours at a time, deprive them of food and access to the bathroom, and he began getting physical with the boys. In one incident, he was beating Francine so viciously inside her home that she yelled for Christy to call the police. Christy ran out the door towards her grandparents' house. Knowing that the police would be coming, Mickey let Francine go. She fled the house, and his rage kicked back in, and he followed her. He caught up with her in his parents' front yard and resumed his attack. When his parents tried to break it up, he attacked them both. He hit his own mother in front of the entire neighborhood. When the police arrived and found him beating his wife, they intervened. Finally, he struck one of the officers, and he was arrested for assault on a police officer— So, again, you can beat the shit out of your own wife in front of multiple witnesses, even threaten to kill her in front of police officers, but you can't touch a cop. With all of this going on, Francine never stopped fighting for a better life and a way to escape from Mickey. She enrolled in a GED program and was excited when the work came easily to her. That smart, studious girl she'd once been was coming back. In 1976, she applied for a grant to take classes at Lansing Business University, which later became Davenport College. She got money for tuition, books, and travel. She went to school, took care of her four young kids, kept her house immaculate, and fended off the violent predator who'd taken over her entire life. As she tried to move forward, Mickey kept falling further and further into the gutter. He spent time in jail after another of his attacks on Francine resulted in him assaulting another police officer. He couldn't work following the accident, not that he would have anyway. He spent all of his disability money on booze and pills. He was worthless, and he knew it, which just made him that much more awful to his family, Francine especially. Even as she continued to try to make positive strides in her life, Francine felt more trapped than ever. Mickey's behavior was getting worse. The beatings were getting worse. The police had proven a thousand times over that they couldn't help her. Domestic abuse was still a private matter in the 70s, after all. She had no familial support, not from her family or from Mickey's. She thought about taking her own life, but she couldn't imagine leaving the kids alone with Mickey and his parents. She wanted to run, but she knew Mickey would find her before she ever made it out of town. He always found her. She tried to fight back, to defend herself, but that would only make Mickey madder and the beatings more severe. 
She even tried reporting to her caseworker that Mickey had moved himself into her house and she couldn't get him out. They didn't offer her any advice on how to get him out of the house, but they made sure to tell her that her benefits were based on her being a single mother, and having Mickey in the house meant that she was committing welfare fraud. So she went to them for help, and they threatened to press charges against her. She was utterly trapped, and there was only one way out. So all of this brings us to March 9th, 1977. Francine Hughes is 29 years old. She has four children. Christy, who's 12, Jimmy, who's 10, Dana, who's 8, and Nicole, who's 6. She and Mickey have been divorced for six years. Six years. He's been torturing and tormenting her for nearly 14 years, and he's essentially squatting in her house. That day, Francine woke up at 5 a.m., intent on just surviving another day. She got the older kids off to school and dropped Nicole off at daycare on her way to class. She attended her morning classes and then dropped a friend off on the way home, which made her about 10 minutes late getting home. She typically got home around 1.30, and it was 1.40 p.m. when she pulled into her driveway at her little rented home on Grove Street in Dansville, right next door to Mickey's parents' house. Which, that drive from Lansing to Dansville is not a quick one or an easy one, but we already know Mickey's a colossal psychopath, and he's rip-roaring drunk at 1.40 in the afternoon. The kids had a half day that day, so they got home from school at noon, only to find that Mickey had locked them out of the house. Now, I don't know what good old Flossie and Berlin were doing next door. Maybe they weren't home, but they didn't get involved. So by the time Francine got home, the kids were cold and hungry. They hadn't had lunch. Mickey was furious that Francine was 10 minutes late, which of course meant she was having an affair. And Francine was pissed that he'd locked her kids outside, like any mother would be. A beating ensued, but it was no worse than any other beating Francine had endured. She was always covered in bruises. They were out of food, the kids were still hungry, and it was getting close to dinner time at this point. So Francine loaded the kids into the car and ran to the grocery store. She let them pick out their own meals, and they chose TV dinners, which, why would you? Francine didn't normally buy TV dinners, so the kids thought of this as a treat. TV dinners were not a treat. TV dinners were disgusting. I did love me some kid cuisines, though. You remember those? With the little brownies? With the... Yeah, I liked those. It was something quick and easy. The kids were starving. Francine still had homework and laundry to do. So, you know, solid choice versus making a whole meal for the family. But Mickey did not like that solid choice at all. Francine had already been late getting home because of school, and now she was making his kids TV dinners instead of a home-cooked meal because of school. So now, after locking his kids out for the entire afternoon, he's concerned about their level of care. Okay, so of course, the logical conclusion in all of this was that Francine had to stop going to school, right? How dare she try to make a better life for herself and her kids and take her focus even slightly off of Mickey and his needs? He told her that she wasn't allowed to go to school anymore, that she was going to stay home and do what a wife is supposed to do. She's not your fucking wife, dude. Uh, He wanted her to say it out loud. She refused, so he attacked her. He punched her shoved her, and choked her until she agreed to stop going to school. 
He ripped her books. He dumped the contents of her backpack on the floor. And then he made her take it all outside to the burn barrel and burn it. All of her hard work, all of her hopes and dreams, up in flames. He continued to beat her, began to choke her, and threatened to kill her. Francine yelled for Christy to call 911, which she did. By the time police arrived, Mickey was sitting in his chair in front of the TV. Not his chair. Francine's chair. It's not his fucking house. His knuckles were bloody and swollen. Francine was bruised and bleeding and crying. When the officers questioned Mickey, he admitted to beating Francine and even told them that he planned to kill her. And they did nothing. They declined to arrest Mickey, and they left them there together. After the police left, Francine started to make the kids dinner, because again, they hadn't eaten since breakfast thanks to their asshole dad, and now it's late in the evening. She turned on the oven to make their TV dinners, and Mickey rushed into the room in a rage. He backhanded Francine, knocking her to the floor. The kids ran to their rooms, and Mickey continued to beat Francine. He threw the TV dinners on the floor and smeared the food in Francine's face and hair. He hit her and choked her until he tired himself out. Then he forced her into the bedroom to have sex with him, after which he promptly passed out like a true gentleman. Which, who would expect anything else of him, really? Francine wanted to take the kids and run, but her son Dana had gone to a friend's house to play, and she would have to wait for him to get home. So she made the kids dinner, finally, and as they ate in silence, she thought about her next move. She had to leave. Had to. But what was the point? Mickey would find a way to drag her back in. He always did. And then she realized what she had to do. She thought to herself, I'll just burn it all down. And by it all, she meant the house. That way, there would literally be nothing to come back to. Except Mickey. She would have to burn him too. Francine later described the moment she decided to kill Mickey as one of the calmest, most rational decisions she ever made. She went to the garage and got the gas can. She told the kids to put on their coats and wait for her in the car. She went to the bedroom where Mickey was passed out asleep and opened the door. She doused the floor surrounding the bed in gasoline, then lit a match and tossed it into the bedroom. When the flames rose up in a ring around Mickey, she began to panic, like, Oh my God, what did I just do? But before she could even think about trying to help her monster of an ex-husband, a gust of air from the fire, which was now raging, slammed the door shut with a loud bang, trapping Mickey in the bedroom with the flames and her on the other side. Now, if that's not a sign, I don't know what is. And Francine took that as a sign. She fled the house. She got into the car where her kids were waiting and screaming and crying because by this point, the house was in flames and flames were shooting from the windows. It would be logical to expect that Francine would run with the kids, right? She just murdered her husband and burned her house down. But she didn't run. She drove straight to the Ingham County Jail the next town over, and with the gas cap still in her hand, she started screaming, I did it, I did it, when she was approached by an officer. While Francine was giving her statement to police, an awful situation was unfolding back on Grove Street. Because remember, Francine's house, now fully engulfed in flames, was right next door to Mickey's parents' house, so Flossie, Berlin, and Mickey's younger brother Donovan, who was living at home, were the first ones on the scene. And I wonder... I wonder what they thought at first. 
I bet it wasn't that Francine had set the house on fire with Mickey inside. I would bet you a thousand million trillion dollars that they thought the opposite, that Mickey had finally killed Francine and started the blaze to hide his crime. Or worse, that he'd gone crazy and set the house on fire with the whole family inside. I would imagine that there's no scenario in which they thought Francine and the kids got away and Mickey was the one dead in the fire. Flossie had to be held back. She was trying so frantically to get to the house to her son and her grandchildren. When the smoke cleared and the officials were finally able to make it inside, they found just one body, the body of Mickey Hughes, face down on the living room floor. He was badly burned, but it was determined that he actually died from smoke inhalation. So karma finally kicked in at the end because that asshole woke up and he tried to get out of the house. He died knowing that Francine finally stood up to him. And Berlin, Flossie, and Donovan, who just stood by and watched as Mickey tortured his wife for over a decade, stood by and watched as they wheeled his charred body out of the house. Justice. Finally. Francine was arrested, of course, and charged with first-degree murder. She was appointed a rookie public defender by the name of Arian Gradanis, and officials assumed it was an open-and-shut case. She confessed there was no question of her guilt. But Francine's attorney was a fighter, and after interviewing Francine and the kids and friends and family members and neighbors, after pouring over years and years of police records from all of the calls out to the Hughes home, he said that he had never seen a more well-documented case of severe physical and mental abuse. Francine spent over a decade crying out for help, and she never got it. She had already given so much of her life away to Mickey that Arian Gradanis was not going to allow her to lose anymore. So he had Francine plead not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. The temporary was important because it implied that the insanity was over, which meant Francine would not have to serve time in a mental institution or a prison if she was found not guilty. The trial of Francine Hughes began just after her 30th birthday on October 24, 1977 at Lansing City Hall. By the time the trial started, the case had made international headlines. Prior to the fire, domestic violence was largely considered a private matter. It wasn't talked about. But here's this woman, this mother of four, that fought back in the most spectacular way possible and completely flipped the script on the domestic violence conversation. This was no longer a murder case. This was a women's rights case. And women from all over the country showed up to support their girl Francine with signs and chants and songs. Francine wasn't a murderer. She simply did what she had to do after being left with no other choice. Men, of course, argued that letting her get away with this would set a dangerous precedent, that women all over the country would just start murdering their abusive husbands all willy-nilly, which, first of all, that didn't happen. But even if it had, would this world not have been a better place with a few less Mickey Hooses roaming around? The trial lasted 10 days. Dozens of witnesses were called from each side of the aisle. One witness was Ingham County Deputy Stephen Schlater, who'd been called out to the Hughes home earlier in the day on March 9th. He testified that Mickey admitted to beating Francine and said, He told her it was all over for her because she called me. He made numerous threats that he would kill her, and he made the threats to me. Well, why the fuck didn't you do something about it? 
Another witness was Flossie Hughes, who testified that she'd never seen her son hit Francine or anyone else, herself included. This was, of course, bullshit. Her calls to police and her presence during incidents were all well documented. It was reported that she sat perfectly straight on the witness stand, filled with rage, clutching her little brown purse and shooting daggers at Francine with her eyes, while going back and forth with Francine's attorney, in an exchange that often got quite heated. And I've not seen photos of the real Flossie, but the actress that played her in The Burning Bed, Grace Zabriskie, Zabriskie? I don't know if I said that right. Whew, she does evil well. She actually does a lot of horror movies for that very reason. So she was an excellent Flossie Hughes. On November 3rd, 1977, after five and a half hours of deliberation, a jury of 10 women and two men found Francine Hughes not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Let freedom ring. Oh my God, that was terrible. I'm doing that again. Let freedom ring. That was even worse. Martina McBride's Independence Day, which I just butchered twice. I think I got worse when I tried to fix it, but I'm going to leave it in there because I think we all need a laugh right now. That song was actually inspired by the Francine Hughes case. Judge Ray C. Hotchkiss, who presided over the case, was pleased with the verdict and said that it may turn up a little fire under this fog to enunciate to the world that there is a problem here. And that's exactly what happened. The first women's shelter in Ingham County was established. Laws began to change nationwide, and the conversation became about helping battered women versus protecting violent men. So when Francine lit that match, she really lit that match. After 13 years living in hell and eight months in jail, Francine was finally free of Mickey Hughes. Twelve days after her acquittal, she and her four children moved back to Jackson with Francine's parents. She went on the talk show circuit, and she was compensated for appearances on shows like Donahue, Oprah, Sally, Jesse, I don't know, but definitely Donahue. She was contacted by a major publishing house in New York City for the rights to her story, and she received $11,000 in compensation for the book, The Burning Bed, which was written by Faith McNulty and published in 1980. Francine used that money to put a down payment on a house. The kids were enrolled in school in Jackson. Francine became known as a feminist icon, which she thought was strange. I don't know what they expect of me, she once said. I was just a housewife then, and I'm just a housewife now. Things weren't all easy breezy, though. Francine was fragile. She couldn't go out in public without her mother, and she suffered from anxiety attacks and severe PTSD. Her children were bullied at school. Other kids said mean things like, We can't come to your house to play. Your mom might burn us up assholes? Kids are such assholes, aren't they? Christy came to hate the idea of marriage, and she started running around with her friends, getting high, and getting into trouble. Jimmy went to counseling for anger issues, as he often got violent with his younger siblings. Francine herself went a little wild. She started partying every night, drinking, and taking amphetamines. Things weren't going much better for the family of Mickey Hughes. They stayed in that house, right next door to where Mickey died. They quite literally lived with his ghost. And Mickey's brother Donovan followed in his big brother's footsteps in a very eerie way. A year after Mickey died, Donovan was critically injured in a car accident, just like Mickey had been. He suffered from a TBI, just like Mickey had. Eleven months passed between Mickey's near-fatal accident and his death by fire. 
just about the same amount of time passed between Donovan's near-fatal accident and the day he took his life in 1979, still haunted by his brother's death two years prior. In 1980, three years after the fire, Francine found love again. She married amateur country musician Robert Wilson, who had just been released from prison after serving 10 years of a 30-year sentence for armed robbery. Francine's kids were not happy, partly because of the jail thing, probably, but mostly because the relationship moved fast. Francine and Robert moved in together within two weeks of meeting and were married a month later. Girl, slow down. Christy disliked her new stepfather so much that she refused to move with the rest of the family when they moved to Tennessee, where Robert Wilson was from. The movie rights to The Burning Bed were purchased by a production company, for which Francine received $8,000. She invested that money into a 15-acre piece of property that she and Robert purchased and proceeded to build a massive three-bedroom house on. Robert became an insurance salesman and ran his own business selling chain-link fence. That's an odd combination, but I mean, whatever. Francine went back to school, and she became a nurse. Things were finally finally looking up. And then, in June of 1984, four months before Farrah Fawcett played Francine on the small screen, the Bedford County Department of Social Services visited the Wilson home after an allegation of sexual abuse was made against Robert by Francine's youngest daughter, 13-year-old Nicole. The social workers were presented from entering the home by two big old Dobermans, so they left a note in the mailbox. Francine called the office an hour later and said she and Nicole were moving back to Jackson, Michigan. Like, that day. And they did. So Francine and Nicole moved back home and reunited with Christy. Which, who knows what drove that decision, but I've got to say, it's one of the best ones that Francine has made in this horse... This horror story? (laughs) This horror story. Oh, man. In this here story, I've been telling... Your daughter says her stepdad was inappropriate with her, and you drop his ass like a hot potato and go home. Except Francine only took Nicole back to Michigan. She left the boys, Jimmy and Dana, with Robert in Tennessee. And so that's how Francine came to be living in Jackson again in the fall of 1984 when The Burning Bed premiered on network television. Francine and Robert did not divorce in the midst of the accusations against him, He denied ever touching Nicole, and he said she made up the story so that her mom would take her back to Michigan, where she could run the streets with her older sister. Francine never really took a side, at least not publicly. She removed her daughter from the situation, but she stayed married to her husband, and she never said who she believed. She stayed with the girls in Michigan. Robert stayed with the boys in Tennessee. Francine was said to be abusive toward her daughters, who were wild and were frequently seen around town sporting bruises and black eyes, eerily reminiscent of their mothers when she was about their age. On June 15, 1986, Mickey's father, Berlin Hughes, took his own life in their family home. Police officers found him sitting in the rocking chair in the bedroom, a shotgun blast through his chest. He died just yards from where his son had died nearly 10 years earlier. Once the girls were grown, Francine went back to her husband. They settled in Layton, Alabama, where Francine worked as a nurse and Robert ran various businesses. They ran a nursing home together for a time. 
They welcomed grandchildren, one of whom they adopted and raised as their own. Francine enjoyed her life outside of the spotlight and away from Michigan. On March 22, 2017, just over 40 years after the tragic event that brought her worldwide notoriety and made her a feminist icon, Francine Wilson died at a hospital in Sheffield, Alabama after a lengthy battle with pneumonia. She was 69 years old. Her children, I believe, at least some of them, still live here in the area. The Hughes home still stands on the corner of Grove and Adams, although I'm not sure who lives there now. The lot where Francine's house once stood remains vacant, aside from an old beat-up tree and, ironically, a fire hydrant right out by the street. There are rumors that the property is haunted. Um, I can tell you guys a couple quick stories. So the site of the Hughes home is a stop on one of the Demented Mint tours. It's from the original tour, so I've been there many, many times. And the first year that we did the tours, my friend Kat Ryan, who is a psychic and medium, used to come with us on every single tour. So every week we were out at this same spot, and she did not like the spot of the Hughes home. She said there was a very negative energy there, a very angry male presence, uh, and she didn't believe it was Mickey. She said that she thought that it was Berlin, the father. And I've heard some pretty nasty rumors about him. I'm not going to share them because small town rumors can be just that, but I've heard some pretty awful stuff about him as a person, which would then explain how Mickey became the way that he was. But who knows? I don't know. Anyway, this one night we're on a tour and Kat refused to get off. And she didn't refuse. She chose not to get off the bus when everyone got off the bus. She'd heard the story. She'd wandered the spot many times. She didn't need to do it again. So she stayed on the bus. Everyone was kind of walking around and taking pictures and using their ghost hunting app. And I was standing just outside the bus. So she stepped off the bus for a minute to get some air. And I was taking pictures. I took a picture of the crowd, and I could tell that it had a weird blur to it, so I took another one a second later, standing in the same spot from the same angle. And right as I was taking these pictures, Kat kind of grabbed her head, and I was like, what, do you have a headache? And she said, no, I just feel like I got hit in the head. I feel like I'm concussed, like I'm injured. And we get back on the bus a little while later, and I'm looking at the pictures, and the first picture I took that had that weird blur on it when you actually look at it, it looks like a translucent eye right up to the camera, like someone who was translucent came and put their face right in my camera. You can see the eye, you can see the eye socket, the eyebrow. It's so fucking creepy. And then the picture I took a second later from the same angle is perfectly crystal clear. I'm going to try to put that on the website, but I don't know between the resolution change from Going from my phone to the computer and then being blown up as big as the website's going to blow it up. I don't know if you'll be able to see it as well as you can see it in person, but it's a pretty crazy picture. And then a couple years later, Kat was not regularly coming on the tours anymore, but she still comes every once in a while. And she was on a tour and we went out there and it was the first time she'd been there in a while. And she turned to me and she said, you know what? It's really weird, but I'm not sensing the men as much now. I'm sensing a female presence. And at first I thought that was weird, but then when I thought about it a little bit more, this was the first time that we had been out there since Francine had died. I can't imagine that that's where she would choose to spend eternity, 
but maybe she just likes to go there every once in a while and fuck with the guys if they're all trapped there, right? Mickey, his brother, his dad, assholes that that made her life hell. Why not give them a little back in the afterlife? And that, friends, is The Burning Bed. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. This is a story I've told dozens of times, but never quite this in-depth. Could you... Could you imagine me taking this long to tell a story on a tour with 30 plus people just standing in an empty field listening to me? Oh my god, that would be terrible. My ratings would go straight into the pooper. Not the pooper. That's different than the crapper, isn't it? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean it. Oh lord. I don't know what to tell you guys. I can't handle this pandemic anymore. (sighs) All right, my sources for this episode are an episode from the New York Times written by William Grimes on March 31st, 2017, uh, an article from the UPI Archives, a People Magazine article written by Giola Diliberto in 1984, a Washington Post article from November of 1980 written by Lynn Darling, Wikipedia, Find a Grave, newspapers.com, you know, my mainstays, and then, of course, the book, The Burning Bed by Faith McNulty. I did watch the movie, too. I mean, I'd seen it before I watched it again. I don't know how accurate that was, but you never give up a chance to watch Farrah Fawcett in action, right? So I know I didn't answer a listener question last time, and I'm going to leave you guys hanging once more because I want to talk about a few things instead during this last little bit of the show. So we are a couple months now into this whole pandemic life, and it fucking sucks. Here in Michigan, especially, things have gotten real ugly, real scary, and I'm not going to get political because that's just not what this show is for, but we're all just trying to get through this thing the best that we can. It's hard on everyone. We all process trauma in different ways, and this is traumatic for everyone, whether you're worried about your health or your finances or the state of the world or all of it, like I am, we're all just trying to get through it. And, um, you know, we're stuck at home and that sucks too. I like to be at home, but not this much. So, you know, many people are taking up new hobbies, new interests. You can only watch so much Netflix, right? So guess what I did, guys? I got chickens. If you follow me on social media, you already know this. I got baby chickens. I panic bought chickens, which I actually read an article about after I panic bought my chickens. It's a thing that people are doing. The world is ending, the apocalypse is here, and we aren't going down without our own eggs, I guess. I don't know. I don't know the reason behind it. For me, uh, it's something that I've thought about doing since we moved out here to the country. We had ducks once. We raised ducks uh, horribly at our previous location, which was on a very busy road, and we didn't have natural water for them, so we had to have a pool, and ducks are smelly and messy, and it was just a bad deal all around. Um, But chickens, they don't need the water. They're not as, I mean, people say chickens are smelly and messy, but if you've ever had ducks, you wouldn't say that, because there's just no comparison there. Um, But yeah, baby chicks, and For the first couple weeks that we had them, I had them in this little 
wash tub right next to, I'm working from home, so right next to my office chair. So I had little baby chicks to watch run around and play and peep and be cute all day. And they're getting bigger now. And they'll be going outside soon because they're so loud. But baby chickens. What crazy things have you guys done? Baby chickens? I know some of you did. I've seen pictures of them. So I've got four little babies, and they are all named after women that I've talked about on the podcast. One of them, in fact, is named Flossie after Flossie Hughes. Not because I like Flossie Hughes. I hate her. She was an evil woman, but she had a cool name. And so the biggest, meanest, bossiest chick, uh, that's Flossie. And then there's Kitty Lou, who's named after Kitty Lou Jackson, Fondren, Leroy, a million different last names from the Trunk Murder Mystery episode. And there is Pearl, who is named after one of the victims of H.H. Holmes. And then there is Nellie, who is named after Nellie Kehoe from the Bath School Bobbing episode. So Flossie, Nellie, Pearl, and Kitty Lou. They're super cute, but they're getting big. We got to get them outside soon, and I will keep you guys updated on that venture. Whether it's something as drastic as baby chicks or something as little as buying yourself a new coloring book, I hope you guys are all finding things to help yourselves stay sane during these crazy times. All right, that's it, I think. Um, It's going to be time for me to say goodbye for a while, but only a little while, I promise. I actually have a tentative back-to-work date scheduled for myself. I'm shooting for August 4th as a return date. I know that sounds very far away, but it basically gives me about two months off before I have to start working and researching and recording again to have an episode ready for you guys by August 4th. Uh, And then I've been putting some thought into it and doing some planning. And I think what we're going to go to is a schedule where it's three months on and a month off. Uh, this year, I've kind of messed that up because I'm not on a not on a schedule, but uh, I'll come back in August and I'll stick with you guys through November and then I'll take the month of December off. New season will start in January. Year th- Did I say January wrong? I probably did. Um, new season will start in January and then we'll do the three months on, three months off. So I'll do new episodes for a few months. I'll take April off. I'll take August off. I'll take December off. Give me a little break. Give me a little time to work on some other things. Uh, For patrons, though, the bonus episodes will continue. So patrons that are in the $5 and up tiers, they get a bonus episode monthly. There will still be bonus episodes in the off months. So if you haven't joined the Patreon party yet, it's a good time to consider it. It's just patreon.com forward slash so dead podcast. Or you could probably just Google so dead Patreon, but lots of good little benefits there. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, YouTube, under So Dead Podcast. Uh, and be sure to visit SoDeadPodcast.com for all your So Dead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. One last thing today keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.